Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's 4 p.m. in Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan as well, where one of our guests is currently located. Welcome to the Asian Banker Radio Finance session on the Asia-Pacific Banking Industry Outlook 2021. Today, we'll be turning to our guest panel of chief economists and industry experts to look at the key issues and factors that will affect the global economy, financial system, and specifically look at how banking system in Asia will perform over the next 12 months. We are happy to have as our guest today, Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is the chief economist for Asia Pacific at French investment bank, Natasis. We're also happy to have Tamu Baig, who hates economics as well as macro strategy for interest rate, credit, currency, and equities at DBS Group Research. And finally, Eugene Tassimanov, the senior credit officer responsible for financial institution group at Moody's Investor Service. In this radio finance session, we will discuss the outlook and the impact of the global pandemic on the banking industry, rise in credit costs, and declines in net interest margins, as well as the overall profitability of banks across Asia Pacific in the coming year. COVID-19 has plunged the global economy into its worst recession since the Second World War. Economies cannot start to recover until the disease is brought under control. The failure of leading economies to effectively control the spread of the contagion has caused unprecedented economic and social disruptions and set back decades of development that will have long-term impact on future growth prospects. Although effective vaccines have been found and approved for usage, there are signs that the planned implementation of a universal vaccination program will take much longer than anticipated. That may further impinge on the lifting of social distancing measures and a wider restoration of economic activities. In its January Global Economic Prospect Report, the World Bank estimates that global growth in 2020 will contract by 4.3%, a drop of 6.8% from its pre-COVID-19 forecast in January of 2020. It envisioned a subdued recovery in global economic output in 2021, which will grow at 4%, but still remain more than 5% below its pre-pandemic trend. The growth of emerging markets and developing economies in East Asia and Pacific in particular is projected to grow significantly in 2020 to 0.9%, a 4.8% contraction pre-COVID-19, the lowest since 1967. While the World Bank expects regional growth to rebound to 7.4% in 2021 as the pandemic subsides with more widespread COVID-19 vaccination. However, should there be a protraction of the health crisis, it may heighten financial stress and precipitate a sharper and longer than expected contraction in global trade compounded by re-escalating trade tension. This may result in financial crisis that will cause a collapse in lending and a longer global recession as well as slower recovery. While the World Bank has warned about the downside risk, it has also upgraded its January forecast from June of 2020. It is obviously more sanguine 
about recovery and growth, especially for Asia Pacific. I'd like to get our guests' view on how they see the pace of economic recovery in Asia Pacific, uh, how that pace will change with the start of COVID-19 vaccination. Let's start with Tamu to give us his take on growth this year. Thank you, Bumping. Thanks for having us on this uh, interesting topic, uh, which will, of course, remain topical, I think, for years to come. How do we deal with the pandemic and where do things go from here? Um, the worst performers of 2020 will be, at least on paper, the best performers of 2021. So if you think of the outcome of 2020 in the context of a misery index, if you will, change in economic growth rate and change in inflation, the worst three countries in Asia unambiguously would be India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. And thanks to the tyranny of the base effect, those are the three countries that will show very strong rebound, at least on an arithmetic number, sequential growth, you know, we can talk about that later. Um, so it's sort of, you know, not a hard task to come up with, you know, who will be the sort of shiny examples of market pleasing numbers in the context of 2021. And you're already beginning to see the green shoots of that strong rebound. Now we should also be, you know, keen to make sure that we understand the difference between rebound and recovery. India, Indonesia, Philippines are rebounding very sharply. You see that in their trade numbers, you see it in their government receipts of taxation. But by the time they recover all the lost GDP from 2020, it will very easily be 2022. They're not going back to the pre-COVID level of GDP till next year. But this year, they will rebound very, very sharply. Now, beyond that, what is the story in Asia? We have four very successful pandemic management cases. Well, let's say three of them are pandemic management cases of success. Fourth one sort of winged it and got lucky. So the three success cases would be Taiwan, where Alicia is connecting us from. Uh, then there is uh, Vietnam, uh, definitely China, came back very strongly in the second half of last year. And then in South Asia, it's Bangladesh, which will grow by all estimation over 2% in 2020, uh, despite the fact that there was raging COVID infection and not much mitigation. So big contrast from say their neighboring India, where activity contracted sharply because the authorities embraced lockdown. Now the China case is interesting because the momentum for China is a very big influence of both market and economic sentiment in the region. Uh, and you saw that in the third quarter of last year, in the deep malaise of the COVID fallout, China started reporting stronger export numbers. And then as a result, you could also see that the regional supply chain was humming. We were sending inputs to China. China was putting it together and sending to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, although reeling from the COVID crisis, was importing a lot of stuff buoyed by generous fiscal and monetary stimulus all over the Western world in particular. And you see this, for example, in the US trade numbers, despite Mr. Trump's four-year effort, trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis China actually expanded in the COVID year. And in the last four months of 2020, the US ran on average about $90 billion of trade deficit uh, to the whole world and substantial deficit vis-a-vis -vis China. So as China began to hum in the third quarter, we got the first sort of push, if you will, in terms of post-COVID recovery. Now, what has happened in China since then is that the economy has gone strength to strength with the domestic demand engine of the economy starting to fire quite convincingly from September, October onward. So as we sit here in the middle of January, 2021, we see strong travel and tourism numbers, strong retail sales, strong uh, movement as far as credit growth is concerned. So China is stepping into 2021 with a great deal of momentum unless the very recent news on some incipient COVID infection here and there in China creates a systemic risk, I think we can safely say that China will be growing very rapidly. Uh, in the first quarter, our DBS now casting model is flagging China to grow by between 11 and 12% on a year-on-year -year basis, which is of course understandable given that in 
four quarters ago they contracted, but also there is strong sequential momentum. And on the back of that, we will see regional economies pick up. Now, this is a critical point uh, that I need to stress, Bunping, because if this was happening 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a strong growth outturn in China did not really matter that much for the region. China on growth accounting basis was a large source of global growth in 2008 and 2005. But in those days, the growth beta of Asia, if China grows by 1%, how much does Asia grow by? It was not very large. We still de dependent largely on Western demand, particularly US and EU, and also the global economic cycle. If you look at the econometric evidence over the last 15 years, you see an emerging increase in that beta, meaning Asia now depends more than ever for China's economic performance. So if China grows by 11% in the first quarter of 2021, it'll be a very strong uh, galvanizing factor for factories to start humming, sentiments to start improving, investment plans to get reignited all across Asia. So to me, that is the key story. As you have noticed, I've talked to you about for 10 minutes without mentioning the outlook for the US or Europe whatsoever. Uh, I think that is very well understood that on the back of huge amount of policy support measures, they will uh, you know, grow. US probably will grow by 5% this year after contracting sharply last year. And by the end of this year, maybe if things go right, US may have recovered all the loss output of 2020. But in the case of Europe, it's more like a 2022, perhaps even 2023 story because the recovery there is far more muted. So as far as Asia's overall, overall outlook is concerned, the big hope lies on China. And second big hope is their own domestic demand and own domestic success or failure as far as the pandemic management is concerned. Thank you, Tamu. And uh, with uh, China's uh, expected uh, recovery in this year, uh, the impact on the region, as you mentioned, would be much more than uh, 10, 15 years ago. Right. And uh, in the last global financial crisis, China was uh, quite a significant engine of growth with the rest of the Western economy uh, in, you know, uh, uh, in recession. While, uh, while the, the economies falter, we see that China continues to be the only large economy that has managed to uh, maintain positive growth even uh, through uh, 2020 uh, with its focus on domestic consumption uh, now, Alicia, do you see uh, China playing the same role this time around, uh, lifting you know, the rest of, the, of uh, Asia growth, uh, as Tamo has kind of pointed out too? And uh, how worried are you about the, the national debt in, the, in China, you know, especially not so much the national debt, but with corporate and uh, SOE debts? It's been fascinating. I think the, the story of you know, China's dominance in Asia is, is obvious in the data, but it takes us long to actually acknowledge it. And I think that's a good start of the conversation. Um, we were relatively optimistic, maybe slightly less than consensus on Asia's recovery in 2021, because I mean, the base effect is just smashing it all. Yeah, I mean, hardly impossible, although not impossible because we have Hong Kong, yeah? Hong Kong 2019 and, and 2020. So you can actually do even worse than 19 if you, if you really push it. But the whole po point is that why did it happen? Because of lack of mobility, meaning if for whatever reason, and I think the main reason is a global uh, wave. And I think we're not fully out of the woods on this global wave. We have Japan, we have Malaysia, 
we have some signs in China and we have signs everywhere because I was just looking at the data, Thailand, for example, cases have increased. The silver bullet, which was the vaccines, you know, the, the magic rollout of vaccines, which can't even happen in developed economies. How on earth, sorry to say, can we still think it's going to happen just like that before the end of the second quarter? I think we need to review this, this, this um, idea. If you look at, um, you know, a cursor look at where we are with vaccines, we have major economies, China included, for which we don't even have the plan. So we don't really even know uh, when they plan to finish the rollout of the vaccines. And it's not a, a minor issue. Interestingly, in India is ahead. So, you know, it started in, in January with a big push, but then it's already coming down. I mean, it's like, like impossible to keep that pace. So I think we all need to rethink, you know, are we sure we can do this by the end of the second quarter? And if we can't, and this wave, which of course is much more contagious and how much it will come all the way to Asia, I think, frankly, unavoidable, the question is, how can we restrain it? It's going to bring mobility down. So I, I dare say that, again, although we were slightly less uh, optimistic that in consensus, we probably pushed it too far, even ourselves. I mean, I'm talking about not Texas research team. And I'm I'm saying this aloud as we as as you know as we speak, because we don't have new projections, but I'm just fearing as we, that the silver bullet is not as silver as we thought it would be, certainly not as quick as we thought it would be. And we also probably didn't know that we would have um, a wave coming, you know, much, much more contagious than we thought it would be. So all of this brings me to the point of what about China? Because if China manages to avoid everything I just said, then, you know, the spillover effects, even if we have less mobility in Malaysia, something will come out out of uh, imports from China. Well, I have to note, just a minor note, those imports haven't been there in the whole of 2020. I mean, on average, some countries have benefited more. We have uh, agricultural products, a few things here and there, but overall imports in China have fallen in 2020. So we all appreciate the growth. It's lovely, but it's not for us. I mean, us meaning the rest of the world, not yet. So, you know, the, the combination of the two is not as appealing. China is huge and great, but it's not important. So, and if the world falls down into less mobility, maybe not all the way to, you know, the first half of 2020, but something in between what we thought it would be and what it really will be, then, um, and, and again, this is not Asia worse than the rest of the world. Forget about the rest of the world, that's even worse, but it might not be as good as it looks. And, and this will come for your debt dynamics and I will end here. I don't think we have a debt issue. Uh, at, there's many other places where we have debt issues before Asia or certainly okay. before China, but we will have to keep rates low, 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 very low. And, and that, that in itself is creating pro, is, is kind of protracted problems in terms of think about the actual rate of return. Think about the need for banks to cope with those low rates. Think about, mm -hmm. you know, we'll move to banking with Eugene very soon, but 
it's just not what you want to have in a dynamic region. You don't want to have it anywhere, but you know, if, if you are elderly and if you're Europe, if you're Japan, but if you are a dynamic region with those low rates, the degree of dislocation of credit can be humongous. So in a way, it's a pity we can't get out of this uh, sooner. Isha, your view of growth in at least this year is, is kind of more cautious in terms of us getting uh, over COVID-19. Uh, back to Tamu, uh, you, you painted quite an optimistic uh, picture across the region uh, globally as well with, with the US growth. And, and, and that is uh, predicated on uh, COVID uh, being, uh, no, uh, being addressed and being resolved. Um, what if there's a protected uh, uh, another re-escalation of cases and, and so on and so forth? So I think the way to think about that is the following, that in April, May last year, we were hit by a shock that we were completely unprepared for. And as a result, we had to shut down manufacturing and travel and uh, meat processing, and even to some extent, agriculture got affected. But within a few months, we sort of started getting a sense of, you know, how to maintain social distance and be safe while carrying out economic activity. And hence, um, uh, you know, especially in the manufacturing hub of the world, which is you know, Asia and East Asia, um, factories started operating pretty quickly. And regardless of the state of the pandemic, which remained very poor uh, in the fourth quarter of last year, we saw demand for Asia's products remain very, very strong. And Asia ended the year with extremely strong exports. We were, uh, on a PPP-weighted basis, Asia rec recorded about 15% growth on uh, December 20, uh, sorry, November 2020 over November 2019. Um, so that momentum, in my view, remains in place independent of the trajectory of the pandemic, simply because people have cash in their hands. Uh, the supply of paycheck support, the supply of subsidies that is coming from the government in the West will continue unabated regardless of you know, how bad or how good the disease is. And therefore, people's ability to order something through online means remain absolutely independent of what is happening with respect to the crisis. So I think this is where the big difference between the 0809 crisis and this crisis is, that at that time, you had a spate of banking sector difficulties and a spate of corporate stress, which then spilled over into huge distress in household balance sheets, on people's income outlook, and so on. Now, for a few months last year, all of those things were happening. But since then, we have seen a very sharp recovery in the employment picture in the US in particular, but also in Europe, and same here in Asia, that we saw the worst, we left the worst behind us and we started to recover, not because we're back to traveling and hotels are full, but because we're just sort of, you know, countries that can rely on some degree of domestic demand and are doing fine, and some countries that are based on an export engine are doing well. There's an, another very important crucial difference between the past crisis and this crisis, which will again proceed independent of the course of the COVID uh, pandemic, which is the role of banks. Augustine Carstens, who heads BIS, said very articulately and sort of, you know, efficiently in April of last year that banks, which were the problem in 0809, have to be part of the solution this time. And you've seen that. If you look at bank balance sheet, delta of bank balance sheet um, uh, over the quarters after the pandemic, uh, they have been expanding in e Europe, in US, in China. Compare that with 0809 in the US, bank balance sheet contracted in the quarters after the crisis, Compare that with the European crisis in 2011, 2012, bank balance sheet contracted. So if you have credit intermediation taking place because banks have good balance sheet and they're being encouraged by the authorities, then cash on hand, credit on hand will proceed independent of the trajectory of the pandemic. Of course, as um, 
Alyssa pointed out, if the pandemic were to worsen, mobility will be affected. It may not be affected as badly, it certainly will not be affected as badly as it was in April, May, but it will be affected nonetheless. And I think that country that is greatest at risk on that is China. They have you know, been growing like gangbusters and they're doing very well. Uh, by the second quarter comes along, some degree of gravity will catch up with China in any case, nobody can grow by 11%, right? So it'll start coming down. And with the slowdown in growth, some of the normalization measures that the authorities are pursuing in China right now, combine that, there will be some credit risk manifesting. Now, we want to get Eugene into, into the, the discussion as well. How, how do you see banks impacted? In your earlier outlook, I think in, in December last year or October, uh, it was quite a negative outlook for the banking industry. Uh, could you explain? Yeah, indeed, for um, banks in Asia Pacific for um, 2021, we have a negative view. What this means is that the, the, the risks are still tilted to the downside for the, for the financial services industry. And, and there's a few, few reasons for that. You know, primarily, the economic uh, recovery, uh, we expect that to be uneven, highly uneven in Asia. So some economies will do much better in, um, in, 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 in rebuilding their their lost output right so among the the winners i would echo what what my, my colleagues just mentioned you know china vietnam uh taiwan i mean those economies would, would do better and hence their banking system i think will, will do comparatively better on the other side of the spectrum we have economies like thailand for example where you know there's a lot of reliance on tourism banks have large exposures to those those affected industries there's another round of infections in that country. So uh, my point is that of the you know, various sovereigns and, and, and sub-sovereigns in, in, um, in Asia, the economy, the recovery will be highly uneven and that's gonna have a different impact on, on the bank's balance sheets. The second point is that you know, when you have such a huge economic shock as we have seen last year, you know, there has to be some pain on the bank's balance sheets, but we haven't seen none of that last year pretty much right the, the npls were pretty flat just just maybe a few defaults here and there but overall they were flat and there was an obvious reason for that there was a lot of government and policy support a lot of forbearance a lot of moratoriums right so we expect that this year we're going to see some mild uh, impairment on the bank's balance sheet we, we don't expect a huge a uh, flood of, of NPLs. We expect a mild increase. Again, uh, a lot of the support measures are, are still uh, in place. They're, they're not uh, terminated uh, and we'll continue, we will continue to see a lot of uh, credit restructurings in Asia. Uh, so, so again, a bit of, uh, a bit of NPLs here and there. Uh, and, and third aspect of a negative view on, on banks is, is their profitability, right? I think what Alicia mentioned earlier, uh, ultra low interest rates will continue uh, to wait on, on, on bank margins. And, and again, banks in Asia make about 70% of their income from, from, um, uh, from, from uh, loans, right? So this is, uh, you know, if you have a low margin and, we, and weakening margin, uh, it, it, it depresses your, your primary source of income, right? Uh, on top of that, credit costs will probably remain elevated. We actually expect credit costs, and, and these are the provisions, right? We expect that provisions will probably be lower uh, this year compared to last year, because what, what the banks have been doing last year is creating provisions 
ahead of the expected pain, right? So if if the banks were correct in their models and, and the provisions that they preemptively created are sufficient for uh, for new NPLs that we're going to see this year and next year, then I think credit costs would, would moderate. But but if if we're wrong and, and the banks are wrong and and there is uh, a spike in credit costs, then I think it's a, it's a it's a different um, outcome for the for the PNL side of the story. So again, there's a lot of uh, moving parts, but but again, the balance of risks is tilted to uh, to the downside. And then uh, one quick comment to to wrap up my uh, my overview. What could uh, change our view, and you know, in what circumstances we could see a more stable environment? I, I think we'll be watching how those uh, loan moratoria, what, what are the exits from those loan moratoria, right? So if, if the vast majority of clients pay back and, and you know, come back to the original payment terms, I think that will be a very good sign, right? If banks are able to stabilize their margins, so there's not, not, not a lot of further decrease in margins and that credit costs normalized, then the profitability side of the story will gradually recover, right? I think th those would be the, the, the key aspects for us to watch this year. Uh, and, and maybe we'll see indeed some, some normalization of, 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 of banking conditions in Asia. Okay, great. Thank you, Eugene. Uh, going back to Alicia, man, uh, the, the, the view is that the growth this year will be uneven, right? So even in some sectors, uh, it will not be even growth. Uh, there are some part of the economy that is doing better. Uh, there are some industry that will not come back for quite a while. Uh, uh, airlines, uh, tourism, and so on and so forth. And, and those will have a uh, profound impact on employment and so on and so forth. And uh, 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 this outlook that most of you have is kind of colored by uh, how even uh, or how uneven the growth will be. Um, uh, Alicia, what are your views in terms of the, the, the unevenness of the growth uh, in uh, 2021 and its impact? Uh, now, the, on corporates, especially at corporates and the impact on, on banks' uh, balance sheet. Sure. So first of all, um, this very much depends on how far we are, you know, on a new wave in Asia and kind of a delay beyond what we've already seen, by the way, uh, on the rollout of vaccines. Because we were already seeing a rotation. So December, mm -hmm. you know, great news. We are ending this horrible year and everybody's going to get vaccinated in a month. We already saw the old sectors doing better and even energy. So, you know, it was like, okay, we're back. And again, the base effect, yeah. So, so that back would mean hugely so. But I think that rethinking that is going to take longer than we thought is already back in the market although there's still a very very positive uh, vibe in the market uh especially in asia i wonder how long it's going to last because i think as we see this creeping in yeah from japan to malaysia to who next i think thailand has uh big chances of being you know next that rotation so the bad sectors becoming the stars um which is a little bit similar to the countries you know the bad countries becoming oh. the stars might my, my, my no longer be there. Um, so the stars won't be the stars and then you go back to, you know, the digital, the ICTs of the world. So, so it very much depends on, on again, that, that um, 
dual kind of situation. Are we finally out of this or not? Okay. And if we aren't, there won't be any rotation. The second. Okay. How do you see uh, uh, U.S.-China trade uh, uh, with the incoming Biden administration, and uh, how? And also new the new trade pact uh, uh, reset, right? The the regional uh, comprehensive yeah. economic uh, yeah partnership. So I'm going to make an Aristotelian comment here uh, mm -hmm. for in the sense that I'm going to look at for a change because I tend to be as a person quite extreme, but this time around, I think we need to look at the center of the things. I don't think there will be a reset. Uh, you know, that's the extreme uh, Wangi type uh, approach to the issue. Let's restart. I don't think there will be a reset. Also, because politically speaking, it's just very hard for Biden, even if, you know, no matter the choice, people focus on the choice of uh, the administration, the names, the, the Obama, you know, type uh, flavor, but you just need to listen to Obama himself to realize that, you know, that's not where he would have gone had he known, et cetera. So, so no reset, but no Trumpism. So it has to be in the middle. Mm -hmm. Now, the, what my impression is that what we've seen so far is that Biden has, has announced lots of things he will be doing, you know, executive order one after the other, not on China. I, I thought you would start by saying, oh my God, this crazy web of uh, sanctions that are distorting uh, our own US investors and are, you know, given the Wall Street type of, uh, flavor of this administration so far. No, nothing. But he's said lots of things so far. So the re I think no reset, no Trumpism. But if you ask me where in no between, close, not as close to the reset as I thought he would have been based on the choices he has made. I think the pressure to continue to push is clearly there. Okay, uh, pressure to push for, for better relations with, with China and easing some of that uh, trade tension. Um, uh, uh, in, in terms of your view on the regional comprehensive economic uh, partnership, uh, how, how much of a lift do you think it will give uh, regional economies? Okay, so it, it is very interesting to see that RCP, which was announced as you know the deal of the history mm. of Asia, uh, the minute that was done at the APEC uh, uh, APEC meeting, uh, President Xi already said you know we aim at CPTPP, which basically means that this is just a step. You know, this is not really, uh, in my opinion, um, path-breaking deal. It might be actually quite a good thing for ASEAN because at the end of the day is a loser here, very obviously, Taiwan. Three mm. out of four largest investors in ASEAN are in the deal. So, you know, it's going to facilitate, obviously, a global value chain. A, an ASEAN, a more ASEAN-centric value chain, uh, which is a good thing for ASEAN. But it's, but it's not going to be the the path-breaking thing that I think was in principle um, announced. If not, China would not pursue, uh, or at least say it is pursuing CPTPP. Uh, mm. And I think the reason is that that deal is indeed a, of a different caliber yeah, in terms of, you know, uh, much more deeper in terms of, of the actual integration. Um, and thus uh, RCP will remain 
a purely trade yeah. deal, um, with some gains for ASEAN, but not massively so, not even for China, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, Alicia. And uh, Tamu, your, your view on the, how regional trade will evolve in, in, in 2021, and uh, especially between the US and China? The end of 2020 marked you know, massive diplomatic gains for China, both with respect to RCEP as well as CAI, the deal that they signed with the European Union. So just at a time when the narrative in the West is about deglobalization, China is sort of saying, well, you know, we like to trade with our like-minded partners. And if you want to improve market access, if you want to join our digital economy, which has huge potential for making money for the whole world's, you know, service and manufacturer as well, then you need to make us part of your deals. And so for that perspective, RCEP works very well for China. The CAI is potentially very good because both Europe and China have a massive degree of interdependence, both with respect to trade and investment. EU has about $140 billion worth of investments in China. China has about $120 billion of investments in Europe. And all the machine tools that the Chinese use tend to be made in uh, Europe and all the manufacturing parts that the Europeans uh, use tend to be made in China. So from that perspective, the CAI is as important a development as the RCEP. And within RCEP, I think that the remarkable thing about RCEP is unlike the European Union deal or the NAFTA deal, where there was some degree of convergence between Mexico, Canada, and the US, or some degree of convergence among the EU members before the deal was signed, this deal is very, very clear. The heterogeneity is stark. You have countries like you know, Cambodia and Laos, and you have countries like Japan and Australia in this deal. So there will be very, very unlikely that there'll be a quick fix, quick level playing field among all these varying degrees of um, um, uh, development and market uh, structure among these uh, RCEP members. But at the same time, just to you know, take on from the point that Alicia was making, that for companies in ASEAN, this is a massive step forward. Because now within the rules of origin that RCEP has, within the various chapters on technology transfer, on services movement that RCEP has, companies can start building even bigger factories in smaller countries in Asia and take full advantage of the RCEP-related free tariff or low tariff uh, access. So this could be a huge shot in the arm for investment in the region for countries that are willing to absorb flows. And you have within Asia, countries like China, Korea, Japan, very, very eager to move some of their investment footprint into ASEAN. And I think RCEP is a very strong enabling factor. Now, overall, global trade has been stagnant or declining ever since the global financial crisis. But I think we focus so much on trade in goods that we forget that trade in services is actually the elixir of global growth these days. And going forward, that would be it. Uh, and therein, I think, lies some degree of uh, advantage of Asia. Asia is very good at services, not just you know, IT uh, outsourcing in India or Philippines or to, uh, uh, tourism in Indonesia and Thailand. But overall, you know, whether it is financial services or uh, health tourism, education tourism, Asia is the place to be, in my view, going forward. And therefore, the stipulations like RCEP will improve cross-border movements, will improve cross-border payments, and that would be, in my view, you know, a, a co positive contribution to growth prospects in the coming decade. RCEP is also notable that it's, it's kind of, in terms of the countries which are not kind of uh, involved, India, for example, Alicia, 
mentioned uh, Taiwan, uh, how, how would that uh, impact those respective uh, countries? And uh, how do you see uh, you know, trade multilateralization uh, in this region evolving in the years with you know, uh, rival uh, partners being set up? One thing, this is the beauty of Asia yeah. that you know, these agreements are not wedded to ideological stances mm. and they're not like you know, set in stone. Uh, as you can see in the case of you know, very deep integration like the European Union, yep. how difficult it is for the UK to get out of it, right? RCEP is not gonna be that deep. And on the flip side, therefore, it will not be as stringent or as inflexible. Uh, it was very clearly stated by the RCEP members when the deal was signed that as we sort of ratify it through the course of 2021 uh, and beyond, the door remains open for any like-minded country to come back or join. So therefore they are not closing the door on India. India had its own national security, uh, domestic political consideration, particularly with respect to agriculture and the sort of import substitution based manufacturing policy that they're pers uh, pursuing. And therefore they were nervous about, you know, getting into a deal with China, which they felt mm. was going to be unfair to them. Uh, things can change. Minds can be changed, especially if you see this deal turning out to be very good for non-China participants in RCEP, India could very well come back. Um, so I think that you know many RCEP members will continue pursuing various levels of FTA with India, uh, and and therefore you know you can still have some degree of participation in the supply chain by Indian manufacturers independent of RCEP. To me, the biggest gainer for RCEP is Japan because Japan did not have FTAs with Korea and China, and under RCEP they sort of get this entry into low tariff or no tariff movement of uh, manufactured inputs. Um, so yeah, Japan would be the biggest winner. India is not the biggest loser because the door remains open and RCEP remains what they have, the, the members have said repeatedly, a living document. It could be augmented, it could be modified in light of reality of global trade and global uh, geopolitical movements. Okay. Now, uh, earlier we discussed a lot of the uh, growth or relief from, you know, that there's enabling of, or precipitating growth or recovery to take place is uh, state and government uh, relief, stimulus, and so on and so forth. How sustained do you see that in, in the year ahead with stronger sign of recovery and, and the, the impact of tapering of those uh, stimulus and relief? I think we are still scarred by the policy mistakes of 2008-2009. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, we were too sanguine, and then we got too confident about the recovery. So we reacted to the crisis late, particularly Europe, but also US to some extent. China did not get that wrong. They actually saw the crisis coming by late 2007 and were easing policy when Europe was busy raising interest rates. Um, so early detection was poor. And then the prescription, the, the stimulus measures were withdrawn prematurely. Uh, and, and that held back growth both in EU and the US through the course of the 2010s. That mistake will not be repeated by policymakers in Europe and US and also Asian policymakers have learned from that. Uh, so, so enabled by the lesson of that crisis, I can think of you know, many directions that the authorities will pursue this time, like keeping fiscal stimulus in place, like tolerating higher inflation than their target, like enabling banks to continue extending credit, which will mark a strong contrast from the post-GFC recovery. And which is why you see in the expectations, you know, whether it is you know, five cross five inflation expectations, whether you see the shape of the yield curve uh, around US dollar assets, everything is suggesting expectations of prolonged accommodation to stay in place. I don't think the policymakers are gonna disappoint us this time. Eugene, one impact of, of those policy is in terms of credit moratorium and keeping low, low interest rate low. Uh, how would the tapering of those major impact banks 
we talked to uh, a few hundred banks in Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And some clearly say, we don't know what, what is the exit. Some say it's going to be 30% of those loans on the moratorium will, will require some additional help. Some say it's going to be a few percentage points. So, you know, the, 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 the gap is very large. So, so again, it could be pretty bad or it could be really, really, really good in terms of exits. What we've seen so far, seen so far uh, uh, in the last few quarters is that exits are, are relatively smooth. And on top of that, exit from moratorium, right? And on top of that, uh, banks are providing uh, additional uh, targeted assistance to clients, right? So I think what we're going to see is that a lot of those um, system-wide moratoria will be probably terminated this year, but banks would still actively restructure loans uh, over, over uh, the medium term, right? It could be you know, two, three, four, or even more years, right? So we're going to see, uh, uh, you know, potential for, for a hidden NPL situation in Asia, and then not only in Asia, but also globally, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that kind of remains remains a risk because, you know, banks would probably, you know, might in some form of or another just kick the uh, kick the can down the road and, and, and try to, uh, to avoid recognition of NPLs, right? There are uh, markets where asset quality already, you know, in terms of bad debt, like India, Indonesia, which market do you think are more susceptible to a lifting of moratorium that will impact on uh, their, you know, uh, loan portfolios? I think, you know, to answer this question, you have to look at the historical credit costs in many of those systems, mm. right? And, and in Asia, credit costs are traditionally pretty high in countries like Indonesia, India, uh, Vietnam, right? But, but once you dig into those systems in more detail, you see that, you know, for Vietnam, for example, credit costs were pretty high because banks were uh, cleaning up le legacy problems. And a lot of it, a lot of the same explanation is for India, right? So banks have been cleaning up legacy mm -hmm. corporate NPLs, right? So, but, but nevertheless, credit cycles can be more violent in these emerging markets. Hence, we'll, we'll be watching um, carefully what, what the banks report. On top of that, there's always uh, uh, the issue of transparency, right? So some regulators would, and some banks would clearly say, okay, this is the restructured part. This is the loans and the moratorium. And this, this is the mo movement over, over the last few quarters, right? So you have a lot of clarity, but, but many banks don't give you that information. So you have to, to use additional data points and less orthodox analysis, you know, try to figure out where you might see more problems, not only at the system level, but also at the, at the individual bank level. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to be an interesting year for us to try to figure out who, who are the winners and who are the losers here. Okay. Taibun mentioned earlier, uh, as compared to the previous global financial crisis, in this crisis, uh, banks are in a stronger position. Uh, the longer this crisis were to go on, um, where do you see the, the weakness potentially? Of you know, obviously as as the asset quality comes down, you know, it, it will impact on reserve and uh, profitability and, and so on and so forth. Where do you see uh, the the uh, the vulnerability? Yeah, indeed, I fully agree. You know, the the banking systems in Asia 
are stronger than they were 10 years ago. Uh, and the bank banks have been building capital. Uh, mm. So that's that's all good. So capital acts as a as a shock absorber. And, and that's pretty good. I think that the risk is whether we see again reinfections or renewed lockdowns and and this whole economic recovery story does not materialize or, or even reverses right that's that's a clear downside risk and in that situation we're going to see probably more uh, risks to the to the bank's balance sheets and 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 NPLs but again according to our simulations uh the vast vast majority of banks in Asia have really good capital to withstand more stressed uh, a more stressed situation hence uh, we, we don't expect uh, uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, pain on the bank's balance sheet banks will be able to withstand those shocks okay and uh, to Tabun, uh, again if we were to draw a parallel between uh, this particular crisis and uh, the global financial crisis where there is a lot of liquidity, low interest rates, uh, you know, from uh, quantitative easing. Um, in 2007 and 2008, a lot of that liquidity actually uh, ended up in, in private equity investments and you know, the formation of what was then the start of the gig uh, economy and you know, the, the fintech startup and so on and so forth. Do, do you see an equivalent in this pandemic where a lot of that, that uh, that uh, that liquidity going into kind of new economy uh, sectors, we see that bifurcation uh, in in the economy driven by you know uh, technology and innovation versus traditional sectors. Right, but think, look, it's inevitable. If you have cheap leverage available and the yields are low, people will want to use that leverage to juice up their returns. This is the most basic, you know, structural approach toward, you know, money going to places that, you know, you don't expect and this unintended consequence of easy monetary policy, right? So the world is such that, you know, you have a lot of high net worth individuals, you have a lot of corporations, all with access to cheap financing and comfortable cash cushion who are keen to juice up the returns that they ordinarily would have gotten from deposits or bonds, and they're not getting that, therefore they will go elsewhere. Now, this has coincided with some degree of excitement about the world of financial technology and technology in general, that these are companies that in the past have been more about eliminating competition and sort of maximizing their hold on the market. So I have like the Amazon model in mind. And therefore, if you pick the Amazon stock, you make a lot of money, but the rest of the booksellers go out of business. I think what we're seeing in this wave is that the companies themselves are trying to come up with better innovation because the foundation of technology, the basic business model of trying to be very large and capturing gains, I think that's sort of behind us. Uh, it's hard to sort of, you know, unless you have some revolutionary new idea, you can be the next Amazon, you cannot be the next Alibaba. Um, so once that happens, then companies have to become a little more creative. And that's where I think a lot of excitement is, you know, areas like, you know, wealth management and insurance, you know, where we haven't seen sufficient development with technology enabling, and now that's happening. Um, and also, mind you, when one sector is dysfunctional, some other sector will step up to pick up the slack. Classic example is India. India's beleaguered banking system was so shy of lending that you would have had basically a, an economic implosion in 2018-19 if non-banks did not step up. Of course, non-bank financial corporations in India had their own issue of governance and, and bad loans, but the fact of the matter is there was a lot of investment going on there 
investors like the tech-enabled model that many non-banks were pursuing in terms of assessing credit risk. And as a result, people stopped investing in banks and they went to non-banks. And there were times in 1819 when on the marginal dollar basis, majority of the credit intermediation in India was driven by non-banks over banks. So you will see investment in alternative areas at times like this. That's inevitable. And unless the authorities worry about bubbles forming or you know, regulatory arbitrage taking place or systemic risk building, they will let these things continue unabated for the time being. But there is you know, a swing of the pendulum time to time, as you've seen in the case of China. China has been a very big enabler of FinTech and big tech for more than a decade. And as of 2020, they're not that enamored anymore. And they are trying to tighten the belt around the wide latitude that tech companies enjoyed. And I think this is the beginning of a global phenomenon. We'll see it in Europe, or we're seeing it already in Europe. We'll definitely see it in the US. Um, and therefore, investment in those areas would have to take into account that likelihood of regulatory uh, oversight becoming tighter. Um, and beyond that, just as a general note, you know, we are seeing a lot of interest in alternative investment vehicles. SPACs have become a big word these days where companies mm -hmm. are listing themselves without going through the IPO route. We are seeing you know, the torrid pace of climb in the cryptocurrency world. So these are some of the times. If you keep rates at zero, stuff like this will happen. Okay. And uh, finally, my final question to both uh, you and to Eugene is, uh, what do you see as the focus uh, and priorities of banks and the sector as a whole in, in 2021? I Maybe mean, I can start here. Yeah. I, I think th the banks would be busy uh, trying to uh, uh, relax their, their credit underwriting standards, right? So th we've seen a lot of tightening last year. So banks didn't want to really expand too much. There was obviously credit growth, but but a, a lot of it was slow. Uh, and what 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 the banks, well, they need to start grow, growing again, right? So because they have a lot of excess liquidity on their balance sheets. And at some point that becomes a structural challenge, right? It, it just kills your margin. It just, if you just have a lot of cash and you just invest in the govies, you don't make any money. So banks will have to start growing again and where exactly they're growing. That's, that's I think it's gonna be an interesting area. I, I, don't, I also expect maybe a bit more M&A activity in the banking space, because if you're, dealing doing business in, in an advanced market you know you probably want to go in, in more em uh, the em path particularly maybe some banks would be cheaper there and margins are higher as well and, and of course credit costs how do you control credit costs and how do you ensure that moratoria exits are are smooth and and don't uh, lead to a spike in npls i think th those would be the key areas for the banks to watch this year? Uh, to me, you know, the banks will have to get closer to governments. Uh, the governments around the region want green financing, and they will demand that banks become a very strong player in that. We are beginning to see that happen in China, elsewhere, uh, including in my bank. Uh, second is the issue of digital banking, where banks will be facing competition, whether it's in Indonesia or Singapore or elsewhere, uh, more and more uh, branchless, uh, internet-based banking, which will not only offer uh, deposits and credit facilities, they might offer a wide ranging of products, including travel services and insurance and estate planning and wealth management and so on. Uh, so banks have to sort of pull up their sleeves and get to work. If they haven't already digitized themselves, they're actually behind and they might struggle. I think the banks who have sort of embraced digitalization are ready to deal with these challenges. Uh, and going back to my earlier point that, you know, green financing issue, 
it also has an overlay of digital banking because when you start lending in carbon neutral activities, when you start lending in areas like, you know, leaving forests untouched and the carbon value of that, uh, sequestered value of that forest then gets traded in the carbon market, banks would have to become a participant in all of these things. And without technology, these things are very, very hard to track and measure. You need satellite imagery, you need real-time assessment to, to get seriously into green financing. There's a massive amount of capital waiting on the wings, whether it is from sovereign wealth funds mm -hmm. or international multilateral organizations, they all are nudging at banks, you know, help us issue green bonds, help us issue, uh, you know, uh, deposits that are green compliant and help us get deeper into the activity related to greening of the economy. And, you know, for a while, this was something that Europe was taking the lead. America was sort of here and there. I think Asia is the next big frontier. So to me, that's the very exciting uh, backdrop for banks going forward. I totally agree. It's becoming more mainstream. You know, it used to be more niche activities, but it's becoming more and more mainstream. I fully agree. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, with uh, with uh, regulatory pushes, well, in in Europe, where there's regulatory requirements, especially in the asset management space, to kind of declare uh, how you know sustainable uh, investment portfolios are, and and that's kind of being promulgated across. Um, the whole you know, financial services lending business into um, the capital markets, bond markets as well. Okay. Now, uh, on that note, so I, I think uh, among our economists in this panel and uh, credit analysts, uh, in 2021, um, a lot of the regional economies will start to rebound, if not recover, and uh, is from the base, uh, the base effect. Uh, China will be a, a, a key market to watch and is to recover uh, faster than the rest of, of, of the region and uh, with the potential to lift the region uh, up as well. And uh, not forgetting uh, globally, uh, markets like the US will also start to recover. But on the banking side, the, the outlook continue to be uh, uh, more cautious, uh, dimmer, uh, the, the impact on uh, asset quality, uh, is substantial uh, profitability uh, may not come back for 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 until 2022. So um, uh, banks have to really uh, keep their their costs down uh, in order to manage uh, margins. And uh, as Tamu mentioned, uh, uh, watch out for new areas of growth in areas like sustainable finance, green finance. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Eugene and Tamu, for your input as well as to Alicia who, who you know, couldn't uh, join us till the end of the session. Um, we thank you for your insights and your analysis. Uh, we hope that our audience has also found this session insightful and useful. And uh, if you have missed any part of uh, this session uh, and would like to listen to the playback of the session, you may visit the Asian Banker uh, Radio Finance website where you can download recording of past sessions, including this one, as well as sign up for our future sessions. And on that note, I wish everyone and our guest a uh, good day and good afternoon thank you thank you for listening to radio finance for more content visit the asian banker website and follow us on social media